We've got two things in the spotlight today, housing and the middle of the United States. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jim Mueller. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Zillow shareholders got some good news. Fourth quarter results were better than expected, and shares of Zillow up a little bit today. CEO Rich Barton and acknowledge the obvious, which is that the housing market was difficult last year, but that they got through it. They're focused on the future. Nothing particularly revolutionary from the CEO, but you know, I I understand why he said the things he said. Definitely. So at the end of 2021, uh, they announced that they're getting out of their iBuying business. And, but, and that was their big thing. They were the, the iBuyers. And, uh, but that, that kind of they discovered that uh, their algorithm wasn't working too well. Was telling them this is a good price. This is a good price. This is a good price, and they turned out not to be good prices <laughs> to buy at. And so they got out and spent last year reinventing themselves, basically. Uh, for the numbers, revenue was down. Uh, I mean, these are full year numbers. Revenue down eight percent to one point nine six billion for the year. Gross margin was down about four percentage points to eighty one percent. Operating expenses were up 7.3%, led by general and administration and technology and development expenses, both up 18 to 19, 20% or so. So yeah, that, that means an operating loss and versus a gain uh, in 2021 and a net loss versus a gain in 2021 if you back out that loss they had on iBuying. So one interesting comment, uh, they they truly got rid of iBuying. They started 2022 with 10,000 homes in their inventory, about $3.9 billion worth. Uh, they ended the year with zeros. They got all rid of all those houses. Good for them. And that brought in a huge chunk of change on the cash flow statement, about $3.9 billion, pretty close to the inventory value, just a shade less. And so cash flow for our operations looks really good at $4.5 billion for the year. And that's nice to see, but that if if you're paying attention, that's going to be a one-time boost selling all those homes. So now we're going to have to see: did this reinvention work, uh, and are they going to be able to generate solid cash going forward? Yeah, it's interesting because we we've seen this with other businesses in other industries where essentially they try something it doesn't work it's expensive and it takes a while to essentially work their way through that so if you're just coming to zillow with fresh eyes and you look at sort of what they went through over the past couple of years you know it's understandable to say all right in in some ways they are starting fresh and let's see what they can do exactly uh they're they're focusing on rentals generating mortgage business partner uh selling through partner agencies uh virtual tours the last one sounds really intriguing at the end of last year or the start of this year i'm not sure which uh, they bought a photography and video company and they're using that uh, to get really good shots of the homes as well as uh, it's going to play into something they're calling real-time uh, touring so that for the buyer you can sit at your computer and, and get a live tour of the house in a different city uh and they're going to be uh which is kind of cool not so cool for the seller, of course, but 
well, when you're when you're touring, when when you're showing a home, you don't have to. You're not allowed in the house anyway. So <laughs> there's that. Um, but that may be a temporary advantage. That's just a technology trick that I'm sure uh, their uh, one of their competitors, Redfin, is going to latch onto fairly quickly. But uh, they're becoming more uh, a traditional online real estate company. One thing they did uh, that that intrigued me. They're still kind of related to iBuying. Uh, last August, they announced a deal, uh, a partnership with Open Door Technology, Technology Technologies, Open Door, and that uh, they launched that in Atlanta, I believe, uh, just this just this uh, current quarter, and they had some early comments on that. Um, Open Door, of course, makes the cash. It's a it's an eye buyer makes a cash offer, uh, but what they're doing is uh, that cash offer will be fed to the to the buyer alongside a uh what do they call it a zestimate uh zillow's estimate of what the fair market value would be what they could sell the house for and the buyer will can choose which one they want to go through and if they go with open door for the cash open door pays uh, a finder's fee to uh zillow which will be nice but i don't think open door is going to make money off of this um so Open uh, eye buying might be on its last legs. Don Mullen is the operator of uh, Pretian, which is, a, uh, I think I got that right. Uh, the country's biggest residential landlord said eye buying will probably disappear within the two, within the next two years, mostly because eye buyers are forced sellers. They can't hold on to the, they shouldn't have to hold on to that inventory uh, too long, which means you better get that purchase price right. Yeah. The... The partnership with Open Door is, uh, on the one hand, interesting to me, just because you know you can look at it through the lens of, hey, they used to be rivals in this space, and now they're sort of <laughs> teaming up. Yep. On the other hand, I, I still coming back to the, the point you just alluded to, which is like iBuying as a business doesn't seem to be a particularly profitable one, and so I, you know, maybe this is a slight net positive for Zillow, but is it fair to assume that? If this partnership is a net net positive for Zillow, it's not it's not a growth engine that shareholders or potential shareholders should be counting on. I don't think so. I think we're going to move more back to. I mean, the cash offer was certainly convenient and nice and and good to have for the house seller, uh, but it would probably be less than what they could get on uh, on the open market because, of course, the iBuyer buyer has to make a profit, right? Uh, but we, but that whole that whole idea, kind of forgot the lessons of the housing crisis back in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, where we've discovered that hey, house prices can fall, and that's what happened when the mortgage rates went uh, doubled in uh, doubled in the first six months last year. So, yeah, when house prices fall, it's not a fun business to be in, and house prices are probably still falling. Uh, maybe stabilizing a little bit as mortgage uh, rates settle in, uh, but it's still a really unknown. It's going to be an interesting year. Let's put it that way. It absolutely is. Real quick, you mentioned uh, Redfin earlier. Redfin reports after the closing bell today. What is one thing that investors should keep an eye out for when looking at Redfin's results? So, real quick disclosure: I own shares. Um, and I'm following along with the options uh, investment idea that I put in 
uh, on Redfin. So with that out of the way, I'm going to be looking for uh, what their rental business is doing. They bought RentPath in April 2021 out of bankruptcy. And they've spent the, they got it, they put in a new place, a new CEO, and they've spent the past year, a couple of years of reinvigorating in that business and tying it into uh, their online uh, business and thinking and knowing that rentals, renters become buyers and, uh, and buyers and sellers can become renters. And so there's a lot of nice cross-selling. Um, Zillow is doing the same thing as, as well. Uh, but uh, I want to see what, did they actually throw show a profit in the fourth quarter? Like, uh, like they were supposed to, um, like, I think they were going to say, uh, no, or, uh, I'm sorry, it was cash flow positive in the fourth quarter and see if that actually happened and see how much integration that's happening uh, for uh, Redfin. We'll keep an eye after the closing bell. Jim Mueller, thanks for being here. Thanks, Chris. Let's face it, as human beings, we tend to focus more on what's right in front of us. If you're a Wall Street analyst, you're forgiven for paying a bit more attention to companies that are closer to New York City. But for investors, that just means there are opportunities in good businesses that are underfollowed, in part due to where they're located. Ricky Mulvey caught up with Motley Fool's senior analyst, San Mideo, to take a closer look at a couple of businesses between the coasts that are serving investors well. Do you think investors ever, like pay a price for cool? Like, and and I guess the second question is: Is that price ever worth it? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, you look at a company like Lululemon, and you know their their products are trendy, they're hot, they're they're pricey, they're they're seen all over um, in 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 um, you know hot fitness concepts. They're also not just used for fitness; they're used as athleisure. They pre- they pretty much. Um, launched almost the athleisure category. So um, when you see that logo, it's almost been iconic, and you know that's a that's a expensive piece of clothing. There, the person that's wearing it, you know, is kind of cool. They're they're kind of a uh, you know they're kind of trendy for wearing it. So I would imagine that Lululemon stock benefits from a little bit of like a cool premium. Um, whether it's worth it or not, I mean, it depends on how the business does. I mean, Lululemon has been a good business. They've they 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 sell their premium price products. They they their demand is hot. They have they've expanded their categories, expanded their line and you know made made companies like Nike and other competitors really take notice and launch their own um, brands in those categories. So um, for Lululemon, it's definitely been worth it. For some, it's 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 maybe not so much. It really just depends on how the business performs. The, the person wearing Lululemon, I would say, is trying to be cool versus is cool. Yeah. Um, or they could be. You never know. You never, hard, hard to say. Hard to say who's cool. Um, but speaking of things that are uncool, a lot of good investments are very uncool. And uh, you were, you were chatting earlier on, on Slack where there's this idea of like a Wall Street lag, especially for businesses that primarily exist outside of the coasts. Yeah. You know, this is something that's been written about. Primarily, I know from from the first I ever heard of it, it was Peter Lynch, the legendary investor, and he wrote about you know one of the edge 
edges that consumers have when they're looking for winning companies and stocks amongst smaller cap type names is is that store that you that you come across um, in your local neighborhood or the product that you that you buy that all your other friends or people that you know are buying. Um, and when you're able to identify that and then you dig in and see, well, is this an investable company or is this a company that's actually doing well? You may be able to catch that trend before Wall Street does. And Wall Street uh, might notice it later at a later stage of their growth. So he labeled this as kind of a Wall Street lag. And one primary example of that was the limited. You know, it was based out of Columbus, Ohio, went public in 1969. By 74, they only had two Wall Street analysts covering it. By 75, T. Rowe was a first institution that actually bought the, the company um, stock. And that's when they had about 100 stores open across the country. So, and even in 1981, when there were 400 stores, um, there's only six analysts that covered the stock. And the limited became a pretty big winner for Peter um, Lynch in, in his investment fund. I mean, that was also the case with restaurants too, like Chipotle. Yeah, you know, it's funny because Chipotle was one of the uh, the names that when I was in college, we used to go to all the time. And I went to college um, at the University of Texas. And in Texas, you know, plenty of places to eat Mexican, Tex-Mex, burritos, tacos, whatever you want, local places. And Chipotle was thriving. It was doing well in a college scene, in a scene where there was plenty of competition. And I was, I thought the food was quite good, very easily accessible, reasonable um, at that time, at least. And it was a name that you know, I followed. It turns out they started in Colorado, started expanding out um, across the West and other states before they finally did hit New York. And I remember I was working in an investment firm when Chipotle announced that they were going public. And most everyone was like, well, burrito chain, like how could you have a whole burrito chain um, as a public company and will it do well? And I thought to myself, the thesis is as simple as, well, it did pretty well in Texas against pretty stiff competition. And it has a translatable business model and, and food. So I think I think it could. Yeah, something if you can sell burritos in Texas, you can sell burritos anywhere. Um I, yeah, this is irrelevant, but I'm near the first Chipotle. It's like a quarter of the size of all the other Chipotles. I thought like the I, I had this like magical thinking that the food would be significantly better. And it's it's just a regular Chipotle. So I've I've, I've started to go to others now. Um <laughs> Uh, the location thing is interesting because I don't think I don't think that uh, trend has necessarily died, especially for a company like Shake Shack. And I'm not trying to be a hater. It's trading at like two to three times sales, which seems relatively ish reasonable for a restaurant company. But it's got a forward PE multiple of more than 400. And I think some of the hype and some of the coverage is is due to its locations. Um, very. It started up in New York, so you figure there might be some Wall Street analysts who are more familiar with the brand because they can eat the burger. Oh, absolutely. And it was started by a famous restaurateur um, who owns a few different really fancy um, fine cat, fine dining establishments in New York City. So, I would think it could be as easy as analysts go down the street to their local Shake Shack, try it out and say, hey, this is a pretty good, good, pretty good product. Hey, turns out they're actually going public. I think they'll do pretty well. It turns out Shake Shack was almost like the next Chipotle. I mean, there's been a lot of next Chipotles, but Shake Shack was definitely one that they thought would kind of lead the, I think they were calling it the fine casual category or, or and while it's it's done reasonably well, it hasn't been the blockbuster success that Chipotle has been. 
I mean, I'm I'm still surprised by the coverage. It's it's about a two billion dollar company. It's got 20 analysts covering it, according to Yahoo Finance. To me, that seems a little high for context. A, a restaurant that is, I would argue, significantly less cool, but still tasty, is Cracker Barrel. I think it has more locations, smaller market cap, and it has about half the number of analysts covering it uh, than Shake Shack. Um, and I think it drives to this question that. Markets are efficient sometimes, but do markets become less efficient when you have fewer analysts covering a company? It would seem so when you have fewer eyes um, picking the number of gumballs in a, in a jar, if you will. Yeah, for sure, because you know a lot of a lot of investors will rely on Wall Street research and an analysis on what this company is doing, how it's performing, um, whether it could be the next big thing, and you know when. Everyone's picking it apart when when you have a company that isn't followed by many analysts and may not be talked about as much. Um, you don't really might not be in your neighborhood, but it might be one of those local niche favorites, whether it be a restaurant or retailer or whatever have you, that is doing successfully in its kind of niche and its its um, area of expertise, and it's definitely. Small caps are in, in companies that are less followed are definitely less efficient, and that's actually one of the things that Peter Lynch himself too talked about investing in, where you could, as a consumer, as a as a as a everyday individual investor, could gain an edge. Yeah, I think I think one case for that right now might be Winmark. It's it's a resale franchiser. We've we've talked about it on the show a little bit. They do uh, Plato's Closet, Play It Again Sports. They do not have. Um, Analyst conference calls, although they release regular reports, its market caps around a billion dollars, and it has exactly zero analysts covering the company. And the like for Winmark, they I, I I would assume they they kind of like flying under the radar like that and having having fewer eyes on them, so they can just basically continue to perform. Absolutely, I mean this is a billion dollar market cap business almost, um, with over twelve hundred stores in many locations. Um, um, all across the country, with uh, amongst their, I think it's four or five uh, brands that they have um, selling secondhand items from sporting goods, children, teen clothing, musical instruments, women's business and casual attire, a hodgepodge of different different products uh, that are you know secondhand items, not very cool, I guess, right? You know, you're not cool if you're buying secondhand and stuff. Um, and it's based out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's 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 uh, in you know the middle of the country, but you know, I even looked up a couple of their their brands to see if they're. You know, I live in Long Island, and there's maybe even in New York itself, there's just just a handful of some of their brands. So, not well known either, and not probably written about in in the journal or other publications. So, um, but they're they're cash flow positive, high returns on investment, franchise business that that is consistently knocking out of the park. Great place to buy a softball glove. Difficult company to. Talk about often on a daily show because it's, it's just kind of like yeah they're 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 chugging along and and people are still buying resale stuff. Um, I want to talk about some other companies that we were kicking around some some companies that maybe fail the cool test but but pass the the good investment test. Yeah, you know one name that has been a. Uh, old full wreck that has done very well is called Tractor Supply. Um, you know they're based out of Brentwood, Tennessee, retailers servicing recreational farmers, ranchers, um, selling all kinds of products, um, feed for for um, you know uh, farming, 
They have about 2,000 plus stores with an annual revenue of over $14 billion. Um, you know, their concentration of stores are, are, are most in states like Texas, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Georgia, Michigan, Ohio. Um, and the stock has annualized over 25% over the 25 years. It's been uh, a, a fantastic name that had you held for over a long period of time has done phenomenally well. But how cool is ranching and farming equipment and supplies? I, I don't know to you guys in New York, but but out here it's it's pretty cool. And it's also <laughs> it's one of those businesses too where it's selling a lot of um, need to haves, not nice to haves. Where uh, this is where you're getting your chicken feed and and replacement parts for for things. So I think I think that's something that. Um, We'll continue to do well. Uh, Sammy, always, always great catching up with you. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ricky. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. 